This week on the podcast, we have a fantastic guest, the undisputed queen of New Orleans media, Miss Angela Hill. Let me start by saying how down to earth of a person Angela is. Very humble and obviously very interesting person. Uh, We spent a lot of time with her and she covered a lot of topics. She talked about, uh, most importantly, her personal experience with breast cancer, uh, where she was when she learned about uh, that she was diagnosed with cancer and, and, and how she dealt with it. Uh, just great, very inspirational and, and informative story. Uh, she also talked about uh, the Angela Hill Show and her favorite moments from the Angela Hill Show, which obviously was a very popular talk show, TV talk show in the, the late 80s, early 90s in the heyday of TV talk shows. She also talks about her view on the fake news epidemic. Uh, we got a really good opinion from her um, as to where she thinks that's going. And last but not least, she gave some interesting career advice for aspiring TV journalists. So without further ado, our guest on the podcast this week, Miss Angela Hill. I am so excited uh, to have uh, a living legend on episode number three of our Living Lympho podcast. Um, if you grew up in the 80s or 90s in New Orleans, then you basically would have had to grow up under a rock without electricity to not know who Miss Angela Hill is and what she has meant to our greater New Orleans community. She is truly a living legend. I can remember, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, we'd always have a five o'clock dinner with my my parents and my sisters. It was always at five o'clock. And my dad was in sales and he would get all his orders in at 4.50 and we'd have dinner at five o'clock. And, you know, maybe two or three nights a week, they'd allow us to have the TV on, but it would always have to be on the news. With yourself and Garland Robinette, it was awesome. It was, it was incredible. I mean, you were a fixture in, in pretty much everyone I know's life. Let me tell you, I, I, first of all, I love hearing that you all sat down to dinner together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is terrific. Yeah. And that you would watch the news periodically at, at a young age. Very, very meaningful. Yeah. Thank you. It, it, it was very insightful. You guys always did a great job. Um, for those people out there, uh, some of our listeners who have been living under a rock and, and don't know who uh, Miss Angela Hill is, uh, let me hit the high points real quick. Uh, Angela grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas. She graduated from University of Texas and actually started her TV journalist career as an anchor and assistant news director for a local CBS station in Harlingen, Texas. In April 1975, Angela Hill was hired as the consumer reporter for WWL-TV, the CBS affiliate in New Orleans. And in September of 1975, Miss Hill became the first female anchor at WWL-TV. And for the next 38 years, between 1975 and 2013, she co-anchored the 5 p.m., 6 p.m., and 10 p.m. newscast. Uh, Might also add that Angela Hill has won some great national awards, the Gabriel Award, the Gracie Awards, the Freedoms Foundations Award. Angela Hill was also one of the very few TV journalists to actually have her own regular TV talk show called The Angela Show. The show was awesome, aired over 1,600 shows. Uh, Last but not least, this past September, uh, Miss Angela Hill revealed something very personal and something a lot of us can relate to. Angela revealed that this past summer she was diagnosed with breast cancer and had a double mastectomy. Ms. Hill, you have lived such an amazing life, and I know we could spend hours talking about all the different people you interviewed, all the amazing places that you've traveled to, Um, but I think our listeners 
would really like to hear about your experience with cancer. Um, can, you, can you take us back, I guess, earlier this year as to when you learned you were first diagnosed with cancer and talk yes. a little bit about it? First of all, thank you for all your kind words. Um, sadly, I want to say, it's probably happened to hundreds of thousands of women the same way. Uh, you go in for your mammogram. Uh, within a couple of days, you get a phone call. You need to come back. And this had happened to me in 1987. I had a mammogram and they found something and I had a lumpectomy. I'm telling you this because there's an end point to it. It was in my right breast, but it was no cancer, 1987. So in 2009, go in from a mammogram, got that phone call, come back in, did another lumpectomy on the same right breast, no cancer. So when I go in this spring for my regular mammogram, I get the call and they say, we found two lumps in your left breast. Wow. And I just, normally I would think like the other two, everything's gonna be all right. Super. But I didn't like that idea of two lumps in the same breast. Wonderful Dr. Corsetti at Oshner, who had done the 2009 lumpectomy, said, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna do these two and then we'll see. I am literally at my eye doctor's <laughs> Uh, waiting for the eye doctor to come in when my phone rings and it's Dr. Corsetti. And he said, Angela, uh, we have a little more work to do. And I said, oh, I don't like hearing that. He said, well, I took the two lumps out and I tunneled from one to the other. They both have cancer and I want to see what's in that tunnel. I immediately thought, you know what? I'm 68 years old. Wow. I'm not gonna play around with this. He told me, he says, what's important for you to do is you and your husband go on the internet, you look at this, and you start looking at words like margins, and he named a few other things. And he says, then you make up your mind. I went home, I told my husband, and it was very difficult because my husband's first wife had died mm, of breast cancer. cancer. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is not, this is not good. He's very stoic, he's very wonderful, very thoughtful. And I said, let's go to the computer. We did exactly what Dr. Corsetti said. He said, this is what your margin is, this is what this is, this is. You then decide how you wanna handle it. There was no debate. Take them. Take the one that has the cancer in it, but also take the other one, hmm. because it's gonna be a time bomb. I've already had two lumpectomies in that one over a period of years. The, the other one is full of cancer. Let's get rid of them. And he put the ball in your court and let that be your decision. Yes, he yeah. did. Interesting. And he, when I called him and said, this is what we've, we've did everything you said. And of course I went in, he listens, which is very important. And then said, uh, you've made the safest choice. And I knew that I had, because it was I'm saying not a no-brainer because you're losing part of you. Right. Uh, and I know it's very dramatic. And I said to him, let me ask you, because I've heard from other women, that there's this great reconstruction place. Uh, would you be able to go over there? So it's one operation, the removal and the reconstruction. He said, yes, I've worked with them and I'll do that. So once that was in place, then it was a matter of, okay, this is major, and it is major, no matter how you cut it. Right. Um, the, the question then became, what kind of reconstruction? You can do, uh, and this is maybe 
too many details, but uh, you can do where you have implants or you can t- they take your body fat okay. and they create. And that's called the flap. And that, again, is at, it's at your discretion right. as to what you want to go with. Or have nothing. Okay. And there are many women who have their breasts removed and they don't do anything. Right. And they can either put fake things in or they just... I talked to a woman the other day who said, it's great, I can sleep on my stomach. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's an individual choice. Right. And I think there's been some, not a lot, but a couple of people have intimated, gee, did you have to be that radical with it? And, but in my mind, I'm lucky. I'm the luckiest person on the face of the earth, but I'm lucky because I don't have to think about it anymore. If yeah. I had not had the other breast removed, the non-cancerous breast, I would, it would always be on my mind. But here's the bottom line of what happened. So I chose to have the flap where they take your fat and they create breast. Because even though it's an eight hour operation and the implants would have been easier, I'm allergic to so many chemicals. I said, you know what? I'd get those implants and I'd reject them in six months. Not worth it. So you sort of steal yourself, removal, reconstruction. When they removed both breasts, right before I found out that uh, Medicare had stopped paying for the removal of a non-cancerous breast Hmm. the year before. And I said, that's outrageous. I said, what if both doctors wrote that this other breast was a time bomb? And the wonderful lady said, you know what? We can write all we want, but they're very steadfast, but they both will write. I said, then if I have to pay for it, I'm going to pay for it because I'm not going to spend the rest of my life worried. They took both breasts. Pathology calls. Both had cancer in it. Wow. It, it's interesting. We've interviewed so many people that uh, have talked about their and given us their cancer survivor story, and it all comes down to it really seems like the folks that have been successful with it have really taken the bull by the horns and said, this is what I'm going to do. They do their research. They do their homework. They talk to their support groups, and then they you know, come up with a game plan, and they execute mm-hmm. on that game plan. And it's, yeah, it's to do with you know, some, some of the information that your doctor's given you and consultations there, but a lot of it comes down to the patient themselves, right? right? I mean, you have to be motivated and you have to do the homework and, and figure out what's the best way to, to attack it. And that's what it is. And, you know, you're a little bit in shock in the beginning. And then it, reality is, okay, exactly what you're saying. How are we going to handle this? And as I have said before, but I mean it, the number one decision for me was I'm going to live. Right. So what do I you're have to just, do right. to get to that place? Right. Where in my mind, I have the best shot. Right. So, um, again, very dramatic operation. Um, very dramatic operation. But you get through it and you move on. Somebody like you, Angela, that has just accomplished so much in life. I mean, most women in the city, you know, and outside of the city would consider you a role model. You've just done so much. But, you know, something like cancer, which is just out of left field, mm-hmm. you know, you find out you're diagnosed with cancer that still has to be kind of difficult, right? I mean, you could take your life. It may not, you know, it's mm-hmm. going to change your lifestyle. How did you deal with it? Like when outside of, you know, coming up with a plan of attack, you know, from a support perspective, I know when I was diagnosed with cancer, I prayed a lot. I reached out to other cancer survivors, you know, did things along those lines. For you particularly, was there, did you have, I mean, I think your husband's a doctor. I'm mm-hmm. sure that helped. But how did you go about it when you found out you had cancer from that perspective? Where did you find your inner strength to 
tackle the disease. How do you get going emotionally to fight the fight? How do you gear yourself? Again, sadly, but fortunately, I've known too many women who have been through this. And I called a very dear friend of mine who had had uh, a single mastectomy uh, two years before. And I kind of went through the process with her and understood the emotional roller coaster that happens. But I didn't know the detailed details. And bless that woman's heart, I called her, I said, guess what? And this is my decision, I'm having both taken off. Talk to me. And it was A, B, C, D, E, F. The comfort I found in someone who, I mean, very specific details that could guide me through it was unbelievable. And then a couple of other people I just talked to. It's almost like you had people out there that were your friends that were doing for you what you've done for other people the whole life. I mean, you've been that resource, I'm sure, for other people, maybe not as it relates to cancer, but everything else to kind of help them, hold their hand, get them comfortable by listening to them and, you know, being a great... Well, I, I hope I have, but I am forever, forever grateful. And then, uh, as you know, the kindness of people, uh, we'll send a dinner here, we'll take Irwin out there, because I was going to be there quite a while. And uh, you start that process of organizing. Uh, it isn't just the operation, it's how it affects Right. You know, husband. So once I got all that lined up, it was, okay, let's just do this. Right. That's great. A lot of people, after they beat cancer, they sort of get reinvigorated on life. Do you feel like you've been oh. reinvigorated as it relates to life? Absolutely. After beating cancer? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and when I say how lucky I am, they took lymph nodes, as they do to check, and there was no cancer anywhere, which means... I didn't have to do chemo. I didn't have to have radiation. That's great. And that's unbelievable. Right. And so uh, I feel like I am cancer-free, so I'm living like that. Right. And, uh, but I do have a, not that I didn't appreciate life and enjoy life, but it is every day is precious. Yeah. You live in such a beautiful place. I think earlier we talked about, you know, your trips back to Maine. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've just decided after you beat cancer that you're going to continue to do all those great things in life. Well, let me tell you, we had one setback with the operation. Um, I got home and I thought everything was going well. And I don't know if you know, and I don't have to tell you super details, but you have drains. Right. So you spend a week measuring drains. And I, all I wanted was to get those drains out. Because wow. it was like uh, being lassoed all the time. I, I, I couldn't almost breathe. I couldn't stand them. One by one, they come out. And the last one, it was like a party. <laughs> Get that drain out. <laughs> well, that night, I was as sick as I have ever been. Wow. And it was a staph infection. Wow. I ended up back in the hospital for another week and then finally said, I've got to go home. And this was very interesting because even though my husband is a doctor, he has sight issues and wasn't able to do certain things because of his side issues. They said, if you go home and you're, you've, st you've still got to do every eight hours an IV of antibiotic and you're going to have to learn how to do it, that we're going to send somebody to show you. They send this dynamite woman. <laughs> I can hear her voice now. All business, all heart, but all business. Right. And, you know, it isn't just plugging yourself in. You know, you have a pick line. It isn't just that. It is you have to flush it. You have to put the IV for 30 minutes. You have to flush it again. You have to put a non... Th so it was kind of a production. Well, I was terrified. 
oh my God, am I going to kill myself? Maybe bubble or something? Don't you know what I'm talking sure, about? Absolutely. If you had to inject yourself. Yeah. So I was terrified. And Irwin said, I'm so sorry. I can't see it. I can't do it. You're going to have to do it. I went to bed that night. Wow, he was a doctor, and he's telling you he can't do it. You're going to have to do it. (laughs) You're going to have to do it. Okay. So she came at 10 o'clock at night. She did the first one. She said, I can hear her voice. You can do it. I put my head on the pillow that night, and I just listened to her voice. You can do it. You can do it. Because the alternative was going back in the hospital. So by golly, I got up after eight hours, and I did it. I was so proud of myself. And then it was two weeks of every eight hours doing that. And I said, after that, if I'm feeling good for a week, we're going to Maine. And that's exactly what we did. That's great. And that was the ultimate healing. You know, our little birds, our little squirrels. It was. It was. We did this. Yeah. I did the same thing. I went on a cruise with my two best friends. You know, I was 21 years old, and I said, I'm going on a cruise with my two best friends if I beat the disease. So beat Hodgkin's lymphoma and went on a cruise to the Caribbean. It was probably one of the best trips of my life. Absolutely. Because it had meaning. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Angela, you, you know, have given so much of your life to great philanthropic causes, just good causes all across the city, outside of the city. And today, you know, after beating cancer, I got to think that that's kind of pushed you to get even more involved with, with different philanthropic mm-hmm. causes here in the city. Um, what is always, why have you always been one of these people to always get involved in these different philanthropic causes across the city? Why have you always made that a big part of your life? I'm just curious. I'm sure other people are curious. It's like anytime you hit the philanthropic circuit, you're like the MC of like well, at least every other one. So, <laughs> that, which, you're is, which, me feel which good. is great. Uh, you know what it is early in, uh, in the broadcast career here, I'm talking about, uh, and once we started co anchoring, then people reached out. I was so flattered to be <laughs> asked. So nice. yeah. No, I, meant, I mean that. Yeah. And then one by one, I'm talking in the 70s and 80s in particular, and, and 90s, it, the uh, opportunity to get involved in things that I loved, all of the animal groups. Right. I mean, you look back at how the issues have changed. But back then, that was so to work with like-minded people and uh, bring awareness, which was a big deal, and then raise money for very sad things. And then from there, the arts, which I've always loved. It was like, oh my gosh. And you mentioned you're now on the uh, LSU Foundation I Board. Am. Yes. When at first, I, I guess was the I was either the second or third chairman of it. Oh wow! What a okay. dynamic, and to be exposed to what was happening in healthcare at that time. So I've gotten much more, literally, than I could have ever given. That's terrific. That's terrific. And you mentioned, um, you know, animal, different philanthropic animal causes you've been involved with. But like today, what are some of the the causes that you're involved with, would you say, um, mostly? Well, actually, yesterday it was Pet Fest. (laughs) It doesn't get better. Uh, Where every one of the rescue groups, every one of the, um, uh, you know, they have breed specific groups like the boxer rescue and the <laughs> bunny rescue they're all together everybody is together it's it's not competition it's we're in this boat together how can we help each other how can we enjoy these animals how can we find them homes it's such a beautiful day at Lafreniere Park this is the uh, 10th anniversary beautiful do a little uh, Spud McConnell was actually the one okay. who emceed so yeah. I got to judge the pet contest okay but um, of late, the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra, 
big, big, big. And a big thing has happened to them. I know you know this, but 25 years ago, they went broke. Mm -hmm. And it was the musicians who said, we're not going to give up. We are still the only musician-owned orchestra in this country. I didn't know that. Because they decided, we're not giving it up. Mm-hmm. And look at what we've got. That's uh, great. Uh, fabulous. That's great. Carlos Prieto, these fabulous musicians. And they are one of only two orchestras who have been invited, it'll be in February, to Carnegie Hall. That's a big deal. You don't go to Carnegie Hall unless you're invited. So they're going and we're trying to raise money for that. Uh, also, my, I call it my little WRBH radio for the uh, blind and print handicapped. I don't know if you know about them, but they are something else. All volunteer run, That's except great. for a few employees, yeah. an engineer, you know, a sure. grant writer. A, so low expenses. Very low. I mean, a lot of money We goes to literally the cause. print our own minutes <laughs> to the meeting. Right. And uh, they do 77 hours a week of radio broadcast, starting in the morning with somebody live reading the newspaper. At noon, a live broadcast. And then in between, it's every magazine, it's every, uh, there are popular books that are read. So people who have uh, sight issues, the world is brought to them. Right. That's incredible. So you beat cancer, you beat the breast cancer, um, you're out of the woods, and so there's no, what is the follow-up exactly? To Well, there is one more um, procedure that... um, I thought I was going to have in November, but it didn't work. So we're going to wait till March because I want to see the orchestra playing Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Um, and it's it's the my words, not the doctors. It's the fine tuning. So when they when they cut you open, I mean it's really. I mean I have a scar, hip bone to hip bone. Wow. They harvest your fat to create these breasts. They do a marvelous job, but they'll even say it's not perfect. So they wait a couple of months, and then they say, okay, what do we need to do? So I have to go in, and they do a fine-tuning. And it's, it's as much or as little as you want. Um, you have a nipple made, or you have it tattooed. I mean, wow. you, sure, they do yeah. that now. Yeah, right. And, uh, I mean, medicine is a marvel today. So it's one more thing, and then I'm totally done. And you're still being treated at, is it St. Charles Surgical? Yes, is, is that, that's where it will yeah, be done. Right. Uh, yes, Breast Reconstruction Center. Right. I know a lot of people out there, you know, remember you as one of the top uh, female TV journalists uh, here in New Orleans. But uh, I think, you know, it's interesting that you're one of the few people, uh, one of the few TV reporters to start her own talk show. And the the Angela show, which was a big hit and ran from (laughs) the late 80s to the early 90s. And I always thought it was great because... You'd have everything on the show. You'd have everything from, you know, home gardening <laughs> to how did you propose to your wife yes. to, you know, Bill Clinton or yes, right. Barbara Bush. Um, all these amazing people that were on your show and all these interesting topics. Um, but you know what made it great? What made it great? Locals. Yeah. Local, I mean, I was always honored if anybody famous from out of town came in and we could grab them because we didn't pay. It was like we literally grabbed <laughs> and they, them. Okay. But uh, so I'm always very honored and had great experiences. But it was the local people. People didn't realize the volume of talent we have in this town. I agree. Beyond music. Beyond, I mean, right. I'm talking ju- great cooks, great writers, great thinkers, great educational talent. And we've just got them. 
That <laughs> coupled with having a live audience. It scared me to death. Every day it scared me to death, that live audience. It was, it was really heavy on interesting local content yeah. and kind of sprinkle some national That's celebrities it. over it. And or I, take it, a national uh, a national controversy or a national issue and localize it. And that was the other thing we could do. But it was a wonderful experience. And it was, uh, our whole team was female. And we got to a point after about the second year, you know, maybe we need to get some men, some male thought in here. So we would have our staff meetings on Monday. We'd work a week ahead. And we would invite individual men to give us their thoughts on what right. are subjects you want to hear. Okay. And, uh, and that was a great thing. Right. And what... what who came up with the idea to start the Angela Show? Well, I'm going to take credit for that because it was actually very funny. I'm a huge Oprah Winfrey fan. Okay. And she, of course, was on Channel 4 at 3 o'clock. And our news director at that time, Joe Duke, who's now teaching at Loyola, wonderful guy, I walked into his office. I said, Joe, O-P-H-R-A-A, Oprah, <laughs> Angela, A-N-G. <laughs> and he looked at me. I said, I'm serious. We were running some dumb um, game show. It wasn't a great game show like Jeopardy. It was a dumb show. I said, we don't need that. Local. And so he liked it. He, the main thing is he took it to Mr. Early, who was the general manager, the man who hired me in 1975. And he was so open to those kinds of things. Now, that's a huge commitment on a television station because fortunately <clears throat> we had a space in the dome and equipment. Okay. But it's a staff. It's cameramen and right. audio people and then creating a staff for the show. It's a real crapshoot. And they, they did it. And it worked. Correct me if I'm wrong, but at that time, I mean, you were, as, as a TV journalist, you were top of the Nielsen ratings and uh. you were just looking for a new challenge. So you said, I'm going to start the Angela show and pitched it to the person yeah. that you're talking about? That, because I just felt the time was right. Right. Oprah had presented this great, I mean, she wasn't the first talk show, but there were others, but she really took it to a new level. And I'll tell you something very generous on her part. We called, could we come to your show, not talking to her, talking to her many people, sure. could we come to Chicago and see the process you have for how you get an audience in and out and et cetera? So kind. So the director, the, the uh, main uh, producer and I went up, and they took us through, just like we were one of them. And we're, you know, taking notes. And it happened to be the show she was doing with uh, Spike Lee. It was Spike Lee's first biggie. So he was on with the actors. It was, you know, wow, black, so white. Yes, it's yeah. a great show. She, again, says goodbye. But was another thing I learned from her. Every person in that audience shakes her hand as they leave. I thought, what a wonderful touch. They're here because they like her. And what a wonderful thing. And she looks at me and she says, and who are you? I said, I'm the one <laughs> from New Orleans that we're so thankful right. that you're le letting us do this. So we went home. We replicated what she did on a smaller scale right. and did it. I know you always say that it's important for stories to have hearts. And Oprah obviously was really good at that, mm. giving every story a heart. Every story a heart. Yeah. I, hated, I hated to see her show end. I understood. Yeah. She had done it. It was time for her to move on. She was the best of television, meaning she never did the crummy stuff. She never did the low-life stuff that we see too often. Right. She kept the level high. Yeah. 
in, in doing the research for this show and, and looking back at all the, you know, some of these celebrities that you've interviewed on the Angela show, Koki Roberts, uh, Dave Thomas, Willie Nelson, Tommy Hilfiger. Um, I was kind of curious, like, who were some of the guests that you really enjoyed interviewing oh. that, that maybe you're excited to meet him, but then after you interviewed him, you're like, I can hang out with this guy all day. Yeah. So believe me, those were the majority. Every once every, in a while everyone. you meet somebody that is a disappointment, but everybody you just mentioned, I mean, Tommy Hilfiger started by selling clothes out of his trunk of his car Wow. in college, Tommy Hilfiger. And the, the one, uh, Fess Parker, mm-hmm. Fess Parker was a gentleman's gentleman. He walked in 6'6". Six, six. And as a child, I had watched him. Daniel Boone. He was Daniel Boone. Coonskin cap. Well, he and his family now own half of California, but they also own a huge winery. And the Brennan family had brought him in wow. and to p- promote his wine. So again, he's in town. We hear it. We grab him. He's generous. He comes in. He brought me a bottle of wine that had a little coonskin cap on it. It's one of the greatest treasures <laughs> I have ever had in my life. Diamonds wouldn't have thrilled me more than the little coon. I've still got it in the kitchen. I just, I'll never let it go. That's incredible. He was wonderful. That's, that's some great stories. Um, for most of your career, TV journalism was, you know, with the exception of that and, and print media, were the, the only ways to kind of get your news. Um, but over the past, say, 10 years or so, you know, you've had kind of the Internet and social media. And I'm just kind of curious, just from like an industry perspective, like, what do you think of the effect that social media or Internet has had on how the average American gets their news? Well, it's had an enormous effect. Um, I mean, I don't know of any studies per se, but just it clearly uh, I want people to have a broad sense of the news. I love the idea that I can go on the internet or I can check on, and on a specific thing. I love that. But I still believe so strongly in holding, I get three newspapers a day, holding a newspaper, not just for an individual story, but for the broader sense of it. Whole, yeah. Same thing with, I still strongly believe in the legitimacy and excellence of the network news and definitely local. Right. I mean, local believe in because you're not going to pull over anything. This whole conversation about fake news and et cetera, et cetera, gonna, yeah. it sickens me. It, it sickens me. Part of the problem, as we all know, is that when the 24-hour cable things went on, it became feeding the beast. Mm-hmm. In fact, whether it's Fox or CNN or any of them, some of it is news, most of it is opinion. Right. And those are opinions you might be very interested in hearing. But you can't really call it legitimate news like CBS Evening, NBC, ABC, or local newscasts because the rules of the game for journalism is that you don't have an opinion. That's exactly right. I always thought that the measure of a good TV journalist in the 80s or 90s was that you could listen to them tell the story, but they'd come across as unbiased. Correct. And they'd kind of lay out all the information to you, but it was up to you to kind of connect the dots. And that is the bottom, truly the bottom line. Yeah. And... I wish everybody had that sense that you just said, that that's, that's what a real journalist does. I said as I was getting ready to leave, I was talking to a family I knew, and they were, I said, you know, I could go down Canal Street today and give $100 to 100 people and say, guess if I'm a Republican or Democrat. And, <laughs> and they couldn't do it. Right. For $100, they could not do it. And I'm proud of that. 
that wasn't what the job was. Right. Um, do, do you think that TV news will have to, over time, be more biased to in order to compete with social media? Or do you think that they'll kind of stay the way that, you know, we're used to in the 80s or 90s, wherein hopefully, you know, they're laying out the story and leaving it to you to kind of draw your own conclusion? I, I am praying, literally, that true, pure journalism exists and thrives, whether it be in print or broadcast. And it's fine to have those opinion shows. Uh, but I, I, I just say, hang on, hang on. But I do, I do push. I, I go to an exercise class. A young girl is in there. It's all ages. And she's in her early 20s. And this was when um, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt bought mm-hmm. a home here. Mm-hmm. So I go in and, you know, again, eclectic group of people. Oh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt bought a home, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and she hadn't talked much to any of us. And finally she walked up. She said, well, how did you know that? I said, well, actually, it was on our news last night, on the broadcast news. And I said, it's in the paper, but there's even a bigger article in the paper. It never occurred to her to to think of, that was a very telling moment. She doesn't watch the news. She doesn't read the newspaper. But I thought, that's the one I hope, at the right time of her life, will pick up a newspaper, will turn on the news, and not just look at social media. I was at a doctor's appointment uh, a few months ago, and I was in the in the waiting room uh, for the doctor's appointment. And, you know, there was probably 15 people there. And I just decided to, you know, randomly start talking to people about politics and presidential politics just to get, you know, like a, like a, you know, just do like a random poll just mm-hmm. to get people's opinion. And, um, you know, after we talked about it for a while, I think people had an idea as to kind of how I fell out. And they asked me, you know, the question, where do you get your news? And it was kind of the first time ever got that question like where do I get my news because where you get your news will determine kind of your political ideology so um, it's just it's just kind of interesting that that's what it's come down to like it's almost like people don't want to think for themselves like like, don't tell me your unbiased opinion and let me figure it out figure it out for me and hopefully it's in line with what I'm already thinking right and you know I'll act going forward so that's a very interesting observation but that we have to have that it's, again, fine to have opinions, but if you're just listening to the people that you want to know what they're, th- I mean, they're saying what you want to hear. Exactly. You're not challenged. Feed you're not, well, wait a minute. Right. Let's think about that. Right. Yeah. I'm just curious if someone came to you, a, a friend's daughter, and said, hey, I'm interested in getting into TV journalism, would you encourage them to do it? Would you recommend the career? I know it's been good to you, but what are your thoughts there? I have many thoughts on that, but the big one is, I would never discourage anybody, but I would be very interested in knowing what they thought the job was. Because I think, especially broadcast, it's so visual. People have an idea of, oh, that's what she sits and reads the news, or isn't that exciting that she's out on the parade route? <laughs> there, it's much more than what people think, as most jobs are. And yet it is also changing. And it is because our lives are changing because of the internet, et cetera. You have to do more. The sad thing to me about broadcast journalism, I'm talking about in the local level, I'm not talking national. The sad part is, is that across the board, they're making people do more with less. Right. And you have to not only get that story, beat deadline after deadline to get it written. Wow. Now you may be the one who has to edit it, and you have to put things on Facebook and all this other stuff. At some point... How does that affect the quality of the story you're working right. on? And I'll fight that to the finish. I really will. I, I think 
everybody, whether it's broadcasting or retail, they want cheap. Right. And you can't do it like that because in real life, you get what you pay for. And back in the 80s and 90s, which were the heyday, I mean, you had opportunities to go to places like the Middle East and China and report from there. That obviously doesn't happen today, right? It barely happens on the network level. Right. And that's, that's a sad thing, too. In this very small world we live in, now more than ever we should have teams of people all over the world. That's true. And one bureau after the other closed across networks. It's about the mighty dollar. Right. But for somebody who's really interested in broadcast, uh, and they, they get it that it's about the exciting part of getting a story and interviewing people and putting it together, if they understand that, that you work on Christmas Day and you don't mind working till midnight then they're born for it. And I would say, you go for it. And don't, don't be discouraged by the other stuff. Enjoy that. But um, I hope the pendulum swings back a little bit, right. where people are, if you're a great photographer, you're a photojournalist, and that's what you do. And if you're a great writer, you, an interviewer, you're a great reporter, mm-hmm. and that's what you do, and not have to mix them. And I guess you could always, you know, nowadays, if you were to go into that, I mean, you'd get great exposure, great experience. It could be a launch pad to other careers, right? Oh, many, many other careers. That's right. right. And, you you know, you learn to stand on your own two feet. Again, I, don't, I barely remember the first year of my career. I was scared <laughs> every single day. Was I going to make the deadline? Was I going to make it? This is before live shots. If I'd had to do live shots back then, I would have been apoplectic. But... <laughs> It, it, it builds your confidence in yourself. And so that can take you to many other things as well. But if you really like people and want to hear their stories, you really like, I mean, I look at the marvelous teams of people who are doing investigative reporting. Right. I go, oh, please, go on. You can do it. Don't stop. Right. This is fabulous. That's the core of journalism. Mm-hmm. That's the real responsibility of journalism. Shine the light. And that the work that these people put into that, it would be interesting if they actually kept the number of hours they would spend on one story mm-hmm. that we watch in four minutes and say, gee, isn't that great? Right. Then they're on to the next one. That's the world we live in today. It is. That's great. It is. Well, you were definitely born for it. Well, thank as you. As you say. I feel, feel very lucky that I got into it, and, and at the time that I got into it, because they weren't welcoming women back then right. in 1972, right. not at all. So it was difficult in the beginning because there were, I had one, I had one man I interviewed in, uh, this is when I was in Harlingen. He was the athletic director for Pan American University. He started the interview. We started talking and he just stopped and he took the mic off and he says, I'm just very sorry, but I don't believe women should be doing interviews. I almost passed out. Wow. I just, the man who was shooting the interview for me was a tough guy who had come from Mexico and had a newspaper where he left because they were shooting at his newspaper all the time, the drug cartels. Right. So he had a wife and kid, and he said, I'm coming to America. Tough as nails. We got in the car. He looked at me. He said, if you shed one tear, you will never make it. And this was my second job. I said, you're absolutely right, and I'm not going to. I feel sorry that man feels that way. It hurt my feelings. But you know what? I'm here. Right. Yeah. You, you broke in. That's it. That was the K. And he had to change. Right. Well, you, you've always been such a professional. You've always been really kind and pleasant and, you know, fun to watch on TV. What's your secret? Like, how do you, oh. how do you keep that, 
level of, of, you know, just always being the constant professional. There are many days. (laughs) I'm glad you didn't see me because (laughs) not always professional, but thank you. That's a beautiful compliment. Uh, I, I, you know, I was trained right. And I'm so grateful that the very first news director I had, a guy who's no longer with us, this was in actually Corpus Christi was my first job and then Harlingen. Okay. But he was a diehard and he was you strict. You laugh on the air when you shouldn't, you're out. Wow. You're not only out, you're blackballed. Wow. I mean, it was, this is serious and you don't take it lightly. And I'm so grateful I had that because it set, that's why people joked for years that, you know, Jim Henderson Garland would be laughing and I would, it's because it's that, so deeply ingrained. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But um, I believe in good journalism and I believe that we do have standards to uphold. And you don't want to just dismiss or, or have it focused on you. And, and I, it scares me sometimes because I see that happening versus it's the story. Right. It's the story that's important. Right. So, you know, you obviously retired from TV journalism and then you went on to do the, the WWL mm-hmm. radio show. Um, I think recently you left. WW- I did. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what do you do to occupy your time now? Well, uh, the beauty of working for WWL radio for two years, which I loved, but it was very, very long hours. It was 12 hour days. It wow. was, yeah. And I had the greatest producer in the world, Helen Santani, who was a producer for the Angela show. So we went full circle, had a ball. Dynamite Woman runs it, Diane Newman, and but it was I'd get there at eleven. My show was at one, and I would do the show, and then I'd be there at eleven till eleven at night, getting ready for the next day. And after two years, it was enough. And so, but what I broke into that I had never done because it would never be allowed in news, is commercials. So I started doing. I waited six months. I said, let me get a feel for this before I do it, and then um, I started doing some commercials, and I really liked it. And People's Health, not to promote People's Health, but let me do that, (laughs) for 10 years I had been on their committee to choose the champion, the person over 65 who's done something great. Right. And um, uh, so they said, would you do a radio commercial? I said, absolutely. Then do television. So I did the television commercial, and then The Advocate came about. So it it had to match. I had to feel it. I had to believe in their mission. You're right. So I've loved that. And it's, and it's enough. It's just enough where I feel like I got my toe in it and I can still do the, the uh, nonprofit work and still go to Maine. That's incredible. Yeah. It's great. It's a good way to live. Um, I know you're an avid Saints fan. The, yep. the, the Saints have been on a hot streak, so we're, hap- we're happy about that. Stubbed their toe this past weekend, but other than that, they've been doing great. Great. Uh, I remember when you were on television uh, as the anchor, you had, uh, was it a doll yeah. that would predict the yes. future Saints victories? All uh, victories. Okay, so what's the doll saying right now? Are we going to the Super Bowl? Or? 100%. The, 100%? <laughs> 100%. Okay. And I'll tell you, some, I had many dolls. I started with <laughs> one, and then people sent me dolls, which was wonderful because they were homemade and they were beautiful. <laughs> I have one I call the toilet paper girl because it's a toilet paper <laughs> with a doll on top. It's hilarious. But some of them retired when I did. And then we brought a couple of them out for radio. They would do okay. a thing on the internet. And then now I have a couple here at home. But no, see, it's the power of positive thinking. I think there'd be people that would, t- if you started your own podcast and just had the doll telling <laughs> us what the Saints are, people would tune in regularly to get a feel for it because the city gets so excited when the Saints are winning. So, you know, 
We have over 150 lymphomaniac advisory board members, um, and we reach out to them regularly just to kind of say, you know, how can we improve our organization, our event, our podcast? And I guess a few months ago, I had asked um, those 100, sent out an email asking the 150 advisory board members, you know, who would be a good guest to come on our Living Lympho podcast and talk about their experience with cancer, somebody that is local, is inspiring. And, you know, I would say out of the 150, probably 80 of, of those people are, are women. And we probably had 60 people respond back, you know, you need to get Angela Hill on your oh. Living Lympho podcast. So, um, you know, thankfully we have a mutual friend in Eric Paulson and he was able to connect us. And I remember having met you at the, the Cancer Crusader luncheon mm-hmm. maybe six or seven years yes. ago and how gracious you were then. So we, you know, Miss Angela Hill, we just want to thank you for being a guest on our show and for always being open to helping a good cause. The city of New Orleans has certainly been blessed to have you all these years. Thank you so much. It has been an honor to be on this podcast. I really applaud what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.